After today, we have two messages left in this series on redeeming sex and sexuality. Next week, we're going to look at a biblical response to abuse, a serious topic that the church has had to deal more and more with in recent years, and we will consider that next week. And then week 10 will be on divorce and remarriage, not necessarily completely issues of sex and sexuality, and yet we felt like the elder team felt like there was enough overlap on this to warrant covering a subject that we've not addressed from the pulpit in a very long time, and so we're going to do that on week 10. And then starting in August, uh, we are excited to be moving into Matthew chapters 5 through 7, passage of scripture typically known as the Sermon on the Mount. And so for those of you that are eager to begin reading ahead, we'll be in Matthew 5 that first Sunday in August. Today we're talking about transgenderism. What I want to do is, is do a little bit of background stuff first, sort of make sure we're on the same page in terms of terminology, a little bit of history, if you will, as to how we are where we are, and then a little bit on how the, the world ties all this into its view of human sexuality. And scripture, uh, at least two important points of, of scripture that speak to our view of human sexuality from a, a biblical perspective, and then some application points at the end to help us respond well. American Psychological Association defines transgender as an umbrella term for persons whose gender identity, gender expression, or behavior does not conform to that typically associated with the sex to which they were assigned at birth. Two phrases in particular that I just want you to think with me about in that definition. The one would be gender identity, and then the second one is sex assigned at birth. Gender identity, in terms of that, the, the American Psychological Association definition, gender identity would refer to a person's own sense of identity as masculine, feminine, maybe a mix of both or none of the above. Uh, gender identity is, is really about self-perception. It's about who I think that I am, who I feel that I am. Sex assigned at birth is a person's biological sex. Transgenderism holds no necessary connection between identity and anatomy. In fact, the argument would be made that how I feel about what, what I am, who I am, what my identity is, how I feel about that would take precedence over my body in terms of hormones and DNA and anatomy. And, and one critical outcome of, of that thinking is the growing use of medical practices like hormone therapy and, and reassignment surgeries to physically alter the body to match the attitude in, in the mind, the thoughts, the, the feelings that are in the mind. A man trying to look like or be like a woman or a woman trying to look like or be like a man is not a new phenomenon, obviously. The Bible speaks to it all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 5. A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. This is, this is about 1,400, 1,500 years before Christ that this is given in the Old Testament law, telling us at minimum that the, there's, there's practices already in place that God is speaking to and, and he is speaking against that go back to his creation order that we'll talk about in, in just a few minutes. By the time of the first century in the New Testament church, uh, the first century believers are having to deal with issues as well from the culture that surrounds them. Uh, there was a Roman cult uh, that was to, uh, committed to a popular goddess. Male priests in this cult mutilated themselves. 
Uh, one historian explains they sacrificed their manhood to the goddess, and from that point on, they would alter their appearance, uh, feminize their dress and their appearance. And again, I just point that out because the, the practice of dressing up or seeking to appear as the opposite sex is not new. What, what feels new, though, certainly for us, is what has transpired over roughly the last 70 years or so as transgenderism has become a cultural flashpoint prior to Roughly the mid-1950s, um, sex and gender largely were synonymous terms that, that roughly equated to biology, to male and female, and, and the two terms were sort of used interchangeably. It's in 1955 that a psychologist from New Zealand first writes about separating the two and, and putting uh, sex in the area of biology and gender in the area of all that a person says or does to disclose himself or herself as male or female. So in other words, at, at that stage, the thinking is gender now has more to do with self-expression and self-understanding, may or may not match one's anatomy. In 1966, an American doctor writes a book on this and describes this sort of idealized man that he's researched in, in, in his own study, who this man who lives for the day when his quote, and he puts this in quotes, his female soul is no longer outraged by his male body. So again, you're starting to see the development of, of the thinking that, that the mind and the feelings are taking precedence. In 1980, the American Psychological Association adds the category of gender identity disorder to describe someone who has a strong and persistent desire to be the opposite sex by the mid-1990s, the research at that point is largely, the, the language is focusing on gender and gender identity and gender expression far more than it is about a person's biological sex. If you're looking for a, a simple way to understand how the culture categorizes these things, thinks about these things of human sexuality, um, and, and, and I say this to you because I, I think you should. I think you should understand these things and, and how the culture approaches this. I would encourage you to Google, after the sermon, not during, Google the genderbred person. You think of the gingerbread man, think of the genderbred person, and, and you will see these four distinct categories that are being taught in terms of human sexuality. The first one being the, the gender identity, how I identify in, in, in my mind my own, uh, I, my own identity. Uh, secondly, one's expression, one's outward appearance, one's dress, one's clothing, how I express my gender role to others. Third is one's attraction. We might think in terms of the heart and desires, what I desire, what I'm attracted to. And then fourth and finally, almost of least consequence is one's anatomical sex. It's important to understand that 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 is probably least significant in this paradigm because a lot of the, the research regarding transgenderism in recent years has been to de-emphasize anatomy and to try to prove that biology determ determines gender by saying that gender is hardwired into the brain and predetermined in your genes. Remember again, gender being this, this mind understanding of who I am, um, not like a, a pre, you know, whatever year you want to make it sort of definition of gender. The idea that this is hardwired into my thinking through my genes. The, the issue is, of biology is really important because while, while you and I may be convinced that 
when it comes to anthropology, when it comes to our study of man, we get our understanding of man's nature from the word of God, your conversations with many people on this issue will veer into science or at least scientific theories about transgenderism. There's no small chance that you will be told as fact that one's gender, how one thinks about self-identity is genetic. It's in the brain and it does not necessarily match the anatomy. It's not my purpose this morning to belabor this for a great length of time, and I'm certainly not a scientist, but I have over the last few months read enough scientific journal articles on this to say without hesitation that research has looked for but not found a biological cause for transgenderism. There's a difference between cause and correlation. There's certainly, um, we understand there's, there's genetic influences, just like there's genetic predispositions toward various diseases, that, that, that there's much going on in the genes that we don't fully understand, and so there may be correlation, but there is not cause. In fact, researchers continue to say the data is inconclusive in the words of one journal, gender identity development is most likely the result of an interplay of hormonal, genetic, and environmental factors. Understand that for a long time, the gender research sort of honed in on the idea that gender identity is formed and sort of locked and sealed by the age of three, and now there's more of an accepted fluidity to gender identity, and there are a growing number of cases of late-onset gender dysphoria confusion over one's gender of teens and, and adolescents and young people who are struggling with their gender identity. And, and all that has, has led researchers to acknowledge a need for more study into this increase in gender dysphoria amongst teens and young adults who didn't previously show a history of any childhood gender identity issues. Uh, this is one of those places where there is acknowledgement that environmental factors surely seem to play a part. And so there's, there are cases in which several friends in a peer group all seem to experience a sudden onset of gender dysphoria within the same rough period of time, which obviously researchers are looking to say, well, what's the influence of the peer group in this? as opposed to, to some genetic factors. Others are looking into teens who immerse themselves in social media, focusing on gender uh, and, and transitioning before beginning then to question their own identity. And, and all that to say, one of the journals acknowledges this. These factors, quote, raise the question of whether social influences may be contributing to or even driving these occurrences of gender dysphoria in some populations of adolescents and young adults. My point in raising these things is to simply offer you a caution. Don't believe or be intimidated by everything you read on the internet. <laughs> I know that's a shock because you, you've assumed you found some authority there, but, but just as you are obligated to test the preaching from this pulpit uh, on the basis of what scripture says, just as the Bereans did in Acts chapter 17, you are also called to test the secular theories, especially when they sound contrary to what the scriptures teach, you are also obligated to test those and see what God's word says. And so with that in mind, if you want to look at Romans 1, I want to go back to where we ended last week on the topic of, of homosexuality, because I, I think there's some language Paul uses in verses 26 and 27 that's very critical for us in, in understanding things like transgenderism. The world's argument that, that we hear seems to be that transgender behavior is normal and worthy of celebration because it was 
predetermined. I was born this way, as Lady Gaga's pop anthem declared a, a decade ago. Uh, in, in writing that song, she lumps together under one banner, ethnicity, personality, disability, and sexuality, all under the category of, this is how I was born. I'm beautiful in my way, because God makes no mistakes. I'm on the right track. I was born this way. And our culture imbibes then this idea that not only is there nothing wrong here, but that at some level, God the creator is behind all of this. And, and, and so therefore you are wrong to oppose it in any way. Is God behind it? Well, Romans 1, 26 and 27, read these last week, but I wanna key in on a particular point here. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Let's just pause there. Again, we, we touched on this last week, but I, I, I want to emphasize one point. The Greek adjective behind natural is connected to the, the noun, the same Greek noun for nature, when it says that the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Men likewise gave up natural relations. Fusikos, fusios, the, the, the words, the adjective, the noun are rooted back into a, a Greek verb, fuo, simple one. Simply means to grow, to spring up, to bring forth, to generate. Same verb that Jesus uses in Luke chapter 8 when he's telling the, the parable of the soils. And in particular, two of the soils. He says in the one, the seed goes in and it springs up but the, the ground is shallow and then it withers away and dies. And then the seed that falls on the good soil, it says, grows, it springs up. And it's the same Greek word, phuo, that he's using here. So Jesus uses it and it, it has that simple idea of it sprang forth. And so phuo and its cognates, the words that Paul's using here in Romans 1, all speak of a starting point. This is where the seed was planted. This is where the, the beginning is. It all comes up from, from here. And so the idea in Romans 1, as we saw last week, is to point us back to creation. Again, I either listen to last week's sermon or go back and read through Romans 1, and you'll see the emphasis on creation, God's design in creation, his plan in creation, so that we would see God and his designing work in creation. So that's all in the context here. And so when he says, contrary to nature... What he's saying is contrary to God's design because nature's not just some amorphous thing. It's not just something neutral out there that functions on its own. It's, it's God's nature. It's what God has designed. It's what he does. And, and, and this is confirmed by a similar use of the same Greek word in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. In 1 Corinthians eleven fourteen 14 says, does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? This passage is talking about men and women in worship. It deals with long hair and head coverings, and we will not unpack it this morning in, in, in particular. Thinking, man, how many controversial topics would you take in one day? We'll save this one. But I'll say this. The context, again, of this comment, if you go back and look at 1 Corinthians 11, 8 through 12, He's going back to creation again and how God made Adam and how he made Eve from out of Adam and how he brought Eve to Adam to be that, that suitable helper. All of that is there. And so it's creation again. And the point is that these distinctions 
between male and female in, in that culture about hair and head coverings are being made amongst men and women in first century worship. These distinctions are rooted in God's design, in, in God's order at creation. So when he says, does not nature itself teach you, it's not that you need to walk in the woods to figure this out, is that you need to look at God's design, the, the way God has sprung it all up from the beginning, which of course then takes us back to Genesis. God made male and female both in his image, but he made them different, including in appearance. And so the the biblical principle, the one that's picked up in Deuteronomy and is being affirmed here is then men should appear as men and women should appear as women because fundamentally that's how God designed it. And so that word for nature in 1 Corinthians 11 and in Romans 1 really means how things are and how things are takes us back, if we're going to hold to this as authority, how things are should take us back to say, how did God create them? How did God design them? God made humanity as male and female with corresponding expressions of difference in masculinity and femininity. And just be really clear here, there are unique aspects of every personality. So this is not an indictment of a guy who is more sensitive or a girl who has tomboy sort of tendencies. The point is again, there is a God-designed order that prevails and there is a complementary nature to his creation of male and female that he made evident for us to see. Psalm 24.1 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. We look at word order, we've said this before in the Hebrew and the Greek, and, and the first word in Psalm 24.1 is Yahweh. That, that's the point of emphasis. And so what it actually says is, To the Lord is the earth and all that's in it, the world and everything living in it. What it's saying is he is central. This is God's design. God's word unequivocally declares it is all his. It's his creation. It is made with purpose, and it is intended to, to carry out his purpose, made in his image to fulfill his will. If, if any part of you hears that, that Psalm 24.1, and sort of internally churns and thinks, well, okay, so this must be the, uh, this is God says so sort of argument. Yes, there is some, some truthfulness to that because God does say this, but, but let me sympathize with you in the feeling that initial sense of antagonism that we as human beings who cherish our freedom and our independence sometimes pause a little bit at, at statements like that, which remind us that God lays claim to our lives. These are not fighting words. This is just truth. This is God declaring that this is, this is my design. It is my creation. And all that lives in it ultimately answers to me. God has that right. And so that's why the foundations matter. That's why we keep going back to Genesis 1 and 2 to where God began with man and woman and their purpose and where he brings marriage into this. That's the starting point. Genesis 1, 27 is the beginning that the New Testament is upholding when it's describing nature. Genesis 1, 27 says God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So, so when 1 Corinthians and, and Romans points us back to according to nature or contrary to nature, there's the starting point. God made male and female to be different, for sure, with complementary bodies, and yet both made 
in the image of God. God made the the woman from out of the rib of the man, and he brings the woman to the man. And Genesis 2.24 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. After God creates male and then female, and they see each other in their nakedness, and they see the the differences between them, and they learn that God has uniquely fashioned them for a one flesh bond, something he does not speak about in reference to the other living creatures. There is certainly reproduction in the rest of the, the living creatures that God has made. It is of man and woman that he speaks of joining and becoming one flesh, of a unique complementary bond. After all of this, they see each other, they experience all this. God looks at his creation at the end of the sixth day and calls it all what? Very good, right? This is what I have designed. This is what I have made. This is very good. We as believers in Jesus Christ, as we wrestle with the culture and the the culture's tendencies, have got to be able to come back to that place and say, God says, this is very good, and this is his design. Furthermore, it's not just male and female, But the other piece of this that we see in this creation account that's really important is that God makes the human being as a unified body and soul. The body is not an afterthought. The body is not secondary. Part of what we're wrestling with in in the arguments today is not new. It it echoes back to Gnosticism, which separates body and soul and, and makes soul important and body unimportant. And the reality is creation says, Genesis 2-7, when God made Adam, he formed the body first out of the dust of the earth, and then he breathed life into it so that it was one living being, body and soul. And the value that God places on bodies is clear over and over again in Scripture. I I, I would refer you, there's a number of places you can look. I'm just going to go back to 1 Corinthians 6 only because I don't have to set the context because we've talked about it enough times. But in 1 Corinthians 6, There's that foolish argumentation by the Corinthians tied back to Gnosticism that says, I can do what I want with my body because it's my soul that that really matters and I'm keeping my soul pure for God even if I'm doing terrible things with my body. And the response to that in 1 Corinthians 6, 13, the body is not meant for sexuality, but for what? The Lord and the Lord for the body. And so there's God affirming again that by his design, your body's purpose is the same as the the purpose for your whole being. Why we're here, it is to glorify him. It is to honor him. And thus he goes on in 1 Corinthians 6 and says, you're a temple of the Holy Spirit. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Glorify the one who suffered in a body, who suffered on the cross and rose then in a glorified body, who now, because he has done that, now offers to you and I the opportunity to rise again in a glorified, powerful, imperishable body, as 1 Corinthians 15 describes, that we will put on new clothing. And as if to add an exclamation point to all of this, as the Bible ends in Revelation chapter 19, chapter before it ends, that that God emphasizes in two chapters before it ends, excuse me, right? 21 in Revelation. Yeah, this is Bible 101. I had to stop and think there. Revelation 19, that's the point, is that God says again, as it all culminates, it culminates in 
a marriage supper. There is the groom, who is Jesus. There is the bride, who is the church. And it speaks of her being adorned and him for his bride. It, it, again, to bring us one more time, as if we, we think that God might change this at some point along the way, even in the culmination of, of history as we know it and the entering into eternity, there is this glorious preservation of male and female and the joining together. God's design is, is that we are male and female, not merely in our thoughts. He joins soul to body. He has preserved these distinctions. The world around us celebrates the human body on, on sort of a pick and choose kind of basis, largely when it relates to appearance. There's, there's celebration of the body, but when it comes to personhood, the body is often degraded. And, and we see that most clearly in that some will admit that an unborn child has a heart and a brain and all these anatomical features that, that all reflect the fact that it's a human, and yet they will say it lacks, what, personhood. Still not yet a person until it's born. And that you, you can't take these biblical descriptions of, of what God has done in his creation of man and woman and, and joining that body and soul and, and dismiss that with it's only a body. The, the logical inconsistency seems to be glaring, but, but it stems in a, in a worldview that ultimately rails against any belief in a creator who has designed all of this and to whom is owed allegiance. So what we get instead, the, the broader big picture on this is the universe is just some mechanical kind of chaos that was wound up like a clock and, and is running by naturalistic forces and someday will we'll run out and we don't really understand the starting point or know for sure what the end point is. But when that's the view you have of the universe, then the human body is little more than the proverbial clump of cells. It's just another piece within that sort of climate that runs on the same sort of naturalistic function. All of that to tie this back to this issue, it then comes as no surprise that when people struggle with their identity, especially when they perceive this disconnect between their thoughts and what they see in the mirror, end up siding with their thoughts and feelings and begin searching for ways to alter their body to conform to their feelings. Because the body ultimately is is secondary in this. It must go along with how I feel. Back in the last half of the 20th century, when, when the American Psychological Association first began talking about gender identity disorder, the, the treatment that you would have seen in the, uh, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual at that point when somebody had gender dysphoria was counseling and, and therapy to, to talk to them about their thoughts, that their thoughts don't match up with reality, and so helping them find some kind of harmony with their thoughts and bring stability. That's changed now. The medical community now says hormone therapy and gender reassignment surgeries are viable options, I should say sex reassignment surgeries, viable options to bring the body in line with the thoughts and the feelings. Mind you, everyone on all sides of this discussion knows that all of the medical treatments in the world do not actually turn a man into a woman or a woman into a man, but the argument is that these medical interventions will help the person better cope with gender dysphoria. Medical community has gone that direction. The culture has, has gone along and concluded then that a transgender person is best served 
when his or her surrounding community affirms that person's desired gender identity without raising concerns or objections. The problem arises, and we understand the, the nature of the ever-widening conflict here, the problem arises when Christian theology says, God made humans male and female as a unified whole of body and soul to be valued and in which to live out his image. That point is, is, is easily then taken by others as a pushback that is, is questioning, if not attacking, a person's very identity. And that's where we begin to run into the challenges that, that we are now at at this crucial point in history in which the Bible's description of God's creation order of male and female and body and soul is under attack and the persistent call is you either need to ignore it, you need to reinterpret it somehow, or you need to silence it because it's hate speech. And so to that, I want to offer you three applications in closing this morning as Christians. How are we to respond to this? How, how are we to um, continue to press forward in a, an increasingly challenging environment? Number one, differentiate between the agenda and the person. There is an agenda that at minimum opposes God's design and at its worst is actually harming people. We hear mostly about the stories of transgenders who find a sense of inner harmony from medical procedures that alter their anatomy. There are also many stories of people who have painful regrets for the serious physical steps that they took in the process of transition and who are now in a state that cannot easily be moved back or transitioned back. And there's a growing concern about courts allowing children to receive puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones. Things that, again, all sides agree cause irreversible changes to a child's body that will have lifelong medical, emotional, and psychological implications. That's why the agenda is serious. It, it's also pronouns and bathrooms and sports competition and all of that. And I'm not saying that stuff doesn't matter. That's all in there. But, but, but that's why the agenda matters. And that's why as believers, we are responsible to speak up and critique the agenda and to hold out and argue for and be unwavering apologists for God's truth. This is what we believe the creator has designed. This is what he says is, is according to nature. We must also have compassion for people who are genuinely struggling with real desires. We believe Jeremiah 17.9, first because it is God's word, but also because we lived it by personal experience. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Our emotions and desires can all be very strong. And our emotions can convince us that we are very right. It, it, if you have any questions about the power of your emotions and desires, ask a family member who lives really close with you if you have strong emotions and desires. And if occasionally they're wrong, if occasionally you've, you've sort of pressed something with full-on passion and then it proved to be very unreliable in the end. It's because our emotions are that way. Our hearts deceive. And so those desires can be very confusing. 
We believe that because God's word says it, but also because we've experienced it being confused by our own desires. How much more so for somebody who doesn't have the grace of God working through the gospel of Jesus Christ and the inner working of the spirit to bring conviction and comfort and encouragement and wisdom. So we must love people. We must speak truth compassionately to them. As, as we work through these evolving challenges with colleagues at work or family members or people who are close to us and trying to understand how to address them, and, and we, we need to seek wisdom from godly counselors. The, the, there's a lot of this that at least applicationally is sort of new territory for many of us, and, and we need the body to help us think about these things and to think well in terms of what Scripture would say. We need to thread that needle that Jesus did perfectly when he engaged with the world, calling out sin while holding out hope, calling people to repentance while also offering them forgiveness. That's at the heart of the gospel, is that we, we, we manage to do both, and it will be increasingly difficult in the environment that we're in. Second point, try to help people differentiate between the is and the ought. I've quoted and noted for you at the end of the sermon notes a couple of things from Kevin DeYoung, and this is taken from, um, from his article. I, I think I mentioned there it's the Gospel Coalition, his article, and then there's a, a YouTube message that he does along with some other people, including someone who has, did transition and, 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 was, and God has gloriously saved and just a wonderful testimony. I, I would encourage you to read and to watch all of that stuff. I've also put two books in the notes. I, I will say this, I forgot to say this at the first service. I, I didn't, the books are involved and they take some reading. This is not a quick book sort of topic. Um, the, the small books that I've read on this one are only mildly helpful. Um, and, and so I really would encourage you, I've, I've given you a couple books that I've been through on this that I, I feel pretty confident in recommending. So anyway, back to DeYoung and his point about is and ought. What something is and what it ought to be. He says this, the question is not whether such persons and feelings exist. The question is whether the is of our emotional or mental state equals the ought of God's design. And so to use DeYoung's illustration on this, if I were to tell you that I sincerely believed myself to be Asian, you would dismiss me as being unreasonable. And you would speak to me and you would say, don't, don't go around saying that. And, and you would try to talk to me about where my thoughts were confused. In the same way, if a gaunt teenage girl told you that she is fat and therefore she will not eat, you would not agree with her starving herself. You would not say that the is that seems to be your reality, that you, you think it is, is, is good and you should go with it. You would lovingly seek to, to turn her from that. Our emotions and desires may make us feel very sure that this is what it is. This is the way it is, and what I'm thinking and doing is right. But it is God's design, God's ought, that we ultimately come, must come back to and say, but this is what God says. This is what God has defined and described and, and what he has done. As believers, we must not allow the pressures and the criticisms of the culture to silence us on these things when, when there is a chance to compassionately speak into them. 
to speak to someone and say something along the lines of what you feel is your reality, what you, what you feel, you may feel as your truth, but it needs to be seen against the design of your creator. Because I, I know your creator, and I know that he created you in his image, and he loves you, and your creator has offered a way for those who are struggling with their feelings. I understand what it is to struggle with feelings. I may not struggle with the same feelings you do, but I struggle with feelings and desires that are wrong. And I I can speak to you from the level of, of what the creator says about how he desires to show you his design and supply you the grace to live according to that design. He wants to strengthen you and equip you and walk with you so that you can live in what he has called you to. Last one, don't lose hope, number three. I know the tendency... I know the tendency to look at the culture and, and just feel like it's, it's just going. It's going to be gone here. I, I get to do the, you know, the old man thing from time to time. Ah, you kids, I don't know how you're going to make it. It's almost as if we can see the darkness spreading. And it's at moments like that that God is kind enough to remind me from Scripture. And so Romans 8, 18 to 22. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time... 2,000 years ago, mind you, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. We, friends, live in a fallen and broken world, and nowhere is the futility of our world more evident than it is in the excesses and deviations that surround sex and sexuality. We see it on all fronts. Countless people have suffered sexually for their choices and for the actions of others who have caused them. You have suffered or are suffering or you know someone who suffers from some consequences that are somehow related back to sex and and what either they did or someone did to them. And Romans 8 reaffirms to us that this is the sad state of things in a sin-cursed world, but... This is not all there is. The the point in Romans 8 is the creator who responded to man's sin with a curse on creation. That's what it says there in Romans 8. Creation had this sort of imposed on it. When, When Adam sinned, it brings this curse upon all of creation. The creator who did that has sent his son as the righteous judge to bear that curse, to become that in our place so that he might bear our sin and the punishment for that curse so that we might be born again. We might be made new. And as the passage goes on to say, that even the creation longs for the day when it will be made new by the great work of our Savior. Paul goes on in Romans 8, and I encourage you to, to add that to your reading this week. He goes on in Romans 8 to say, we await our adoption as God's children, and the redemption of our bodies. So interesting that he brings bodies back to bear in that. That God will raise us with incorruptible bodies 
that will no longer suffer the weaknesses of the flesh and all of the tendencies of the flesh and the susceptibility of the flesh to those temptations and disease and sickness. We will be raised with incorruptible bodies. He is redeeming our bodies. And then it says in Romans 8, for in this hope we were saved. Friends, the gospel's alive and well. The, The message is still the same. We still ultimately are are calling people to see and and we're trusting in the Spirit's work as we do this. We are trusting that the Spirit is taking God's Word and making it alive in people so that they will see His good design for male and female, for body and soul, and see that this is God's good plan. And that is our joy in a dark culture to be able to proclaim that hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for a plan that reaches back into eternity in your design, your choosing, your setting out something that by the work of your sovereign hand you would cause to to be affected, cause to be done as, as you designed it. Thank you for the order of creation, the way it so magnificently speaks of a creator. We thank you again as we're refreshed again in Genesis 1 and 2 of of your design of male and female and the value that comes from being made in your image and likeness, putting something upon us that, that we would not inherently have, but you have said it and have made it that way giving to us these bodies, which for all of their frailties and wearing out and susceptibility to temptation, nonetheless, it's it's in these bodies that we sing and pray and rejoice and hug and fellowship and enjoy all of the sweet and good gifts that you have given to your people. Thank you for that. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ who is our hope. Father, I pray for anybody that's listening this morning, watching online, who is feeling like some area of desire, some area of sexuality, some some part of their being feels broken. They feel hurt. They feel lost and confused. Father, we would echo the words of Jesus to come to me, all who are weary and and laden down with burdens, and I will give you rest, for I am gentle and lowly. Lord, we, we pray that your spirit would make alive the words of the gospel, that Jesus Christ came and died in the place of sinners, rose again, defeating sin and death, so that what we experience in this life is only the foretaste of the glories that await in eternity for all who will call Jesus Lord and Savior. We pray for your help for our church in the days ahead. We, we can't even begin to fathom the, the challenges that may come, the pressures that we as believers may face. Father, I, I pray for my brothers and sisters who are out in the, the workplace or engaging with family members, and they are, they are facing these sorts of challenges this is not theoretical to them. They are experiencing it on a, on a regular basis. I pray for your sustaining grace to uphold them, to give them wisdom and discernment, 
to enable them to speak the truth, but with compassion, to help them to be able to critique the culture while, while loving with great compassion those who are struggling and hurting. Father, may you, through the work of your spirit, uphold this body of believers that in standing firm on your truth, we would be glorifying you and that in reaching out and putting our arms around those who are broken and hurting, that we would also be extending the very love of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.